My plan today is to talk about the third angel's message, the history behind it, um, the development of it, and the purpose of it for today. And we're going to talk about some things in prophecy that aren't often talked about in a standard evangelistic series or a um, standard revelation seminar. And some of these things many Adventists probably aren't aware of just because it's not studied that often. But hopefully as you see these things, you will see how it adds force to the third angel's message. So why don't we go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and we will start. Father in heaven, thank you for this Sabbath day. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come together and study the Bible. I pray that your spirit would be with us and enlighten our minds, that we would have a better understanding of your will for our lives through through the power of prophecy. So I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to be talking about some prophecies today. And how important do you think prophecy is for us? Is it just some interesting facts that we throw together that give us an understanding that perhaps makes us different from other people, or is it more than that? Is there a reason why we have the knowledge of prophecy that God has given to us? And I wanted to start by reading Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, reading through verse 21. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And this is the Apostle Peter speaking, where he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter's reminding us that he was an eyewitness to the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah and God the Father came down and ministered to Christ just before he passed through his experience on the cross. And Peter is about to make a point here. What he's saying is, I was an eyewitness to this, and that is a sure thing. I was there. I heard it with my own voice. I saw it with my, or with my own ears. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw Elijah and Moses. I heard the voice of God the Father. I was there with Jesus for three and a half years, and I was there when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the next point, is the crucial point that lays the foundation for the study this afternoon. Verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do, ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so, what Peter is telling us here is, he surely was an eyewitness to Jesus and his ministry and to 
the Mount of Transfiguration and that whole experience um, way back 2,000 years ago. But what he's telling us here in this passage is that what we can rely on that's even more sure is the more sure word of prophecy. So that's why we study prophecy. And I would challenge you, if you haven't made much of a study of Bible prophecy, what you will find, especially in the books of Daniel and Revelation, is that it enhances and brings out more clearly who Jesus is and what his purpose is for us in our lives. It's not just to learn a bunch of symbols and facts that, that are interesting historical pieces of information. It actually sets things up so that we have a much clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so that's why we are going to study what we're going to study this afternoon. So I'm looking forward to what we're going to look at today. So the first thing I want to look at is in the book of Revelation, and we're just going to look at this briefly. In the book of Revelation, we have a sequence of sevens, as we call them. You have seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets. And they follow right after each other. Although there is a little bit of an interlude in chapter 4 and 5 talking about um, before the opening of the seals. And then chapter 6 gets into the seven seals. So what is the purpose for these sequence of sevens? Are they related or are they separate? Well, if you study these things, and we're just going to look at this briefly, um, the seven churches, seven seals, and tr seven trumpets follow each other in succession for a reason. Now, I'm just going to look at one particular aspect of these sequence of sevens, at least in the churches and the seals before we get to the trumpets. In the, in the seven trumpets, we have our last church being Laodicea. And the thing that, if you are looking at the unwritten reaction of John the Revelator, and if you're paying attention to um, the sequence, some churches are better than others, but none are worse than the last church just before Jesus comes. Laodicea is the last church, and it's the worst church. And that's basically the end of the seven churches, and then you move on to Revelation chapter 4. And so you're left with the question, is that how is that how God's church is before Jesus comes? Is that the condition? And if so, how can, how can that be possible if Jesus is coming in the time of, of that church? And so that's sort of the unspoken reaction of, of John the Revelator. So then you have the seven seals. And the seven seals are in Revelation chapter 6. And although the seventh seal actually ends up um, at the beginning of chapter 8, as there's an interlude in chapter 7 there. But in the seven seals, we see that in God's last day church, the 144,000 come out of the last day church. So in the seven churches, we're left with the, almost the hopeless thought, this is the condition of God's people before he comes. But yet, in the seven seals, we find that it's the 144,000 that come out of God's last day church. But that leaves the question, how 
is the 144,000 developed out of God's last day church. But then you have the seven trumpets. And at the end of the seven trumpets, you have this parenthetical chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation 10, which describes the rise of the Advent movement. And so it sort of answers the unspoken question of where do the 144,000 come from? The 144,000 are prepared by the Advent movement. And then um, after chapter 10, of course, there's Revelation 14 and the three angels' messages. But just so that gives you a big picture of the beginning, the first half of Revelation, the sequences of sevens, because we're going to get into a little bit of the detail of the seven trumpets that often are not talked about. And many people are ignorant of the details of the seven trumpets just because it's never talked about. We never really hear about it. But I think it's important so that you understand the basis for putting specific time periods and following the prophecies. And hopefully you'll see some interesting connections. So that gives you the big picture. You have the sequence of sevens. There's a lot of detail that we obviously didn't talk about in the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. And maybe we can study some of those things some other time. If you want to hear a good sermon on the seven churches, on audioverse.org, listen to Peter Gregory's sermon, The Nicolaitans. And he goes through, through the seven churches in very clear detail and talks about the doctrine and the teaching of the Nicolaitans and how it's linked to each church and how it comes up in God's last day church. So that's, that's sort of an aside. We're not going to get into all that detail, uh, but you can listen to that on Audioverse, and I would encourage you to. But what we're going to look at now is briefly this, some things in the, in the sills and the seven trumpets and how that led to the rise of um, the Advent movement in prophetic history and the third angel's message especially. So in the seven seals, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, which is under the fifth seal, actually we'll start in verse 9. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O God, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, if you study the seals, we'll see that um, there's a persecuting power that persecutes God's people. And we know from history that this was pagan and papal Rome that persecuted God's people. And so, figuratively speaking, the saints are crying, crying how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Well, interestingly, that takes us to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets start in Revelation chapter 8, verse 2. And Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which was 
which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So let me ask you a question. When you see a picture of an angel taking a censer and casting that censer down, what, do, what kind of imagery or what kind of event does that make you think of? A censer being cast down. Okay, Jesus in the sanctuary, and what specifically, what's that? Okay, leaving the most holy place, okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, the altar in the holy place. Okay. So, and that's that's um, exactly the point that this is making. What we have here is imagery of the close of probation and judgment being pronounced, the censor being cast down. And in Revelation chapter 8, though, we know that this is not um, the end of the world, so to speak. It's actually talking about the judgment of God upon a specific empire. Now, what God is doing here, he's using future language, and what I mean by that is he's using the language of the close of probation at the end of time to describe something that happens before for the end of the, the world. And what I mean by that is in the seven seals, we, we just saw how pagan and papal Rome persecuted God's people and killed many of God's people. And so in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, the purpose of the seven trumpets is to show that God is casting judgment upon the Roman Empire. So that's, historically speaking, Revelation 8 and 9 are, and the seven trumpets, actually the first six trumpets especially, are talking about the, the judgment of God upon the Roman Empire. And we're going to look at some specific details, and we'll try to go through this quickly, but essentially the first four trumpets are in Revelation chapter 8, and this is the judgment of God upon the Western Roman Empire. Um, and they are being judged, and, being, and God is allowing barbaric tribes to come in and afflict Rome for the persecution of God's people that happened in the, the first century. And then in chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpet, um, it's um, judgment on the Eastern Roman Empire, which had moved to Constantinople over in Turkey. So here's what I want to do briefly. Um, I'm just going to run through my notes, and I'm going to write these things down. So the first trumpet, and we're not going to go through all the details because I want to get to the more interesting stuff, but this is important. God has it in the Bible for a reason, so we, we don't want to just pass over it and say this doesn't matter. I mean, God put it in the book of Revelation for a reason. So the first trumpet, we have fire and hell mingled with blood, and um, specifically, this was literally fulfilled between 395 to 410 A.D. when Alaric the king of the Visigoths, 
came and attacked the Roman Empire. So the time period of 395 to 410, um, Alaric, the king of the Visigoths, came in and attacked the Roman Empire. And that's the literal fulfillment of Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. And one thing, just as an aside, what's interesting is the language that's used to describe the seven trumpets is also the, basically the same language to describe the seven last plagues in Revelation 16. The plagues 2 through 7 are very similar to trumpets 2 through 7. And, of course, that, that is spiritual realm that's being judged in the um, seven last plagues. So then the second trumpet, so that's the first trumpet. Second trumpet... is in Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. It talks about the mountain burning with fire. And um, this was literally fulfilled between 428 and 468 A.D. And this was Genseric, the king of the Vandals, who led this part of prophecy. And this was all predicted before it happened. So Genseric, king of the Vandals, between 428, that's kind of a long siege, 40 years, the Vandals afflicted the Roman Empire, and Genseric was the one responsible for that. So how many of you knew this before? I'm just curious. Any of you have studied this before? So a few people, but many of you haven't, so that's good. Um, I'm glad that this is new for many of you, just so you have an idea that that some of the more difficult or less studied parts of Revelation do have meaning. And then the third trumpet's Revelation 8, verses 10 and 11. This talks about a star falling from heaven. It talks about wormwood, bitterness. And this was literally fulfilled between 451 to 453 A.D., And this was Attila, king of the Huns. And uh, how many of you heard of Attila, king of the Huns? So that, that's a somewhat familiar name. So Attila, king of the Huns, was the fulfillment of the third trumpet. And then the fourth trumpet is in Revelation 8:12. It talks about the sun, moon, and stars smitten. Third part of the day didn't shine. And actually... Um, this is talking about, um, in symbolic language, the sun, moon, and the stars are talking about the leaders of the Roman Empire. And this was fulfilled in 476 to 493 AD. So there's some overlap between some of these trumpets. And um, the person who was the leader of this fulfillment was Odoacer. He was the first barbaric ruler of Italy, and he was the chieftain of the Heruli. So that's the first four trumpets, and these four tribes or kingdoms were used by God to fulfill Bible prophecy just as he said they would in Revelation chapter 8. Now, what I want to point out at the end of Revelation chapter 8, and we're not going through all the detail here, but this just gives you a basic overview. 
Um, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, it says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So there's three woes that are yet to follow. And Revelation chapter 9 talks about two of these woes. And this is where things get more interesting when we talk about setting the table for the rise of the Advent movement. The first woe is the fifth trumpet. And this prophecy we find in Revelation chapter 9, verse 10. And the first 10 verses are basically talking about the, the fifth trumpet. What's interesting is that in verse, verse 4, it, in verse 4 it talks about, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Now what's interesting historically um, once we get into the fifth and sixth trumpets, we're talking about the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks. And historically speaking, the Ottoman Turks never afflicted Sabbath keepers during the time that they attacked the Eastern Roman Empire. So in the fifth and sixth trumpets, the Eastern Roman Empire, especially in Greece and Constantinople and Turkey, is being attacked by the Ottoman Turks, but Sabbath keepers never had any trouble from the Ottoman Turks. Now, the Ottoman Turks, of course, were Islamic, Karate's their day of worship, but they, they especially targeted the Christians that were Sunday keepers. The Sabbath keepers were left alone by the Ottoman Turks, so that's sort of an interesting side note. And prophetically speaking, it talks in verse 10, it says, they had tells likened to scorpions, and there were stings in their tells, and their power was to hurt men for five months. So here we have a, a time prophecy here in Revelation chapter 9, verse 10. Then the fifth trumpet. We have a, a prophecy of five months. So five months equals, and there's 30 days in a month in biblically, so five months times 30 is 150 days. It's 150 days. And that equals 150 literal years. Now, historically speaking, the Ottomans first entered into Greece and first started their attack on July 27. And we know this from history. July 27, 1299. Now, one thing that impresses me about the pioneers like Uriah Smith and James White and, and Joseph Bates and Hiram Edson and all of those men is they knew history. They actually knew significant events of history and how they tied into Bible prophecy. And, and that's why the Adventist church developed a prophetic principle known as the historicist principle. And so many Christians today um, interpret prophecy by futurism, everything's going to happen in the future, or preterism, everything's happened in the past. 
But Adventists never fell into that trap because they knew their history. So this is the first point. There is this prophecy of 150 years that the Ottoman Turks would afflict. Um, it says their power was to hurt men five months. And it says they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. It says one woe is past. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And then verse 13 says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now this is where things get a little bit more interesting. Um, in this prophecy here, We have okay. In this prophecy, in the sixth trumpet, this looks a lot better. We're given a prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, and one year. Now, what's interesting is um, on July twenty. Well, let's, let's do this. First of all, 150 years from July 27, 1299 takes you to July 27, 1449. Now, what happened on that day is quite interesting. There was a Greek emperor named Diakosis. I think that's how you pronounce his name. This is how you spell it. So this is the Greek emperor. His name's Diakosis. And he was to take the throne of Greece because his brother had died. But he was so afraid of these Ottoman Turks who for 150 years had been persecuting them that he refused to accept the throne unless he got permission from the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And that happened on July 27, 1449, 150 years after the Ottomans first attacked Greece. So now we have the beginning of the sixth trumpet on July 27, 1449, and we have this prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, and one year that the Ottoman Turks are going to hurt the third part of men. Now, how do we calculate this to get an actual time? So let's just do this. How much is an hour in prophetic time? Now, some of you know, may know the answer, but I want... I want us to think this through. One hour is one twenty-fourth of a literal day. And so to get how much that would be, so it's one twenty-fourth of a day, so prophetically it's one twenty-fourth of a year, if you take the day-year interpretation principle. So what you do is you go 360 divided by 24 to find out how many actual days that is, and that actually equals 15 days. So 360 divided by 24 is 15. Then it gets a little bit easier after that. So one day equals one year. One month equals 30 days, which equals 30 years. And then one year equals 360 days, which equals 360 years. So if you add that all up, 
it's 391 years and 15 literal days. Now, so what that prophecy is saying is the Ottoman Empire will have power for 391 literal years and 15 literal days, starting from July 27, 1449. Now, what's interesting is if you take 391 years, 15 days, and you add that to July 27, 1449, that's going to, let's go down like this. So we go 391 years plus 15 days. That takes us to August 11, 1840. So this is interesting because now the seven trumpets are not only talking about God's judgment on the, the Roman Empire, it's also starting to take us to a very specific time period. And that's the thing that a lot of people miss when they study the seven trumpets. They don't realize that it's, it's funneling us to a very important period of time in, in Earth's history. Now, as far as the history of the Advent movement, William Miller started preaching about the second coming of Jesus in 1832. And he had spent 12, or roughly 12 years studying about the second coming of Christ. And he'd gone through his Bible, and he was a very, very knowledgeable student of the Bible. Now, if you want to read interesting history about William Miller and the rise of the Advent movement, there's a couple of books I have here that I've used to reference for this study. One of them is Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Leroy Freeman. It has so much. It talks about everything that led to the development of William Miller and the Millerite movement, the Midnight Cry, the Great Disappointment, the Rise of the Sabbath, and, and has a, a lot of great charts in here. Um, so it's a valuable book. And then another book, this is called Foundations of the Seventh-day Adventist Message in Motion. Um, some people know the author of this book better than others. But um, anyway, this is, a, this is a scholarly and yet very comprehensive summary of how the Adventist church started, and, and that's where some of the other information I've gotten for this study. Uh, the first book is by Leroy Froome, and the second one is by Gerard Domstig. Um So, anyway, William Miller started preaching about the second coming of Christ, and the Millerite movement began, and I'll just tell one story. Uh, I promised some people I would tell a few stories so it won't be completely dry facts that we're talking about. Um, many of you know this story, but William Miller, for 12 years, studied all these prophecies about the second coming of Christ, and he truly believed that Jesus was coming in 1843. And he, he had a very close connection with God and, and felt very convicted that he needed to start preaching about these things that he was studying. But... As it was, he was roughly 50 and didn't feel qualified to start preaching at the age of 50. And in his mind, he almost jokingly promised God, if you invite me to speak, I will go out and start preaching. And within, I think the story goes, within half an hour to an hour, his nephew knocked on the door and had already been on the way and had an invitation for him to preach. And that was the turning point in William Miller's life. Every time I read that story, it's just you know very incredible to see how 
how God had set things up for William Miller to start preaching this message. And God clearly led in the Millerite movement. And of course, William Miller spent the next eight years preaching at a lot of small churches, and it wasn't until 1840 that he hit the big cities. And at about the same time, there were some other people that caught on to this message. One was Joshua Himes. Another was Josiah Litch. Now, Josiah Litch made an important contribution to this time period. Josiah Litch was studying the prophecies of Revelation, and he was the one who really made sort of the conclusion that this prophecy was talking about the Ottoman Empire. He lined up all the dates, and about somewhere in the spring, he said, this is going to be fulfilled sometime this summer. But two weeks before, two weeks before August 11, 1840, he said, I believe the Ottoman Empire is going to fall on August 11, 1840, based on the principle of the year-day prophetic interpretation. This, so two weeks before this actually happened, Josiah Litch said, the Ottoman Empire is going to fall on August 11, 1840. So let me read you basically what happened on August 11, 1840. If I can find this here. Okay, here we go. Basically what happened is the Ottoman, he was called the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, he's like the king, got into a disagreement with the leader of Egypt. And so Egypt was under Turkey, and these are two pretty major world powers. And Egypt rebelled against um, Turkey, declared their independence, and conquered a large part of the Ottoman Empire. This got Western Europe very concerned because they saw a potential war breaking out. And the Ottoman Empire felt that they didn't have the resources necessary to fight a war against Egypt. So on August 11, 1840, they asked for the protection of the Western European um, nations to help them, to protect them from Egypt. So basically they were surrendering their sovereignty and their... Um, their world domination, essentially. Up until that point, they had been dominant. But then once this quarrel broke out between them and Egypt, and Egypt had a lot of power and took a lot of their fleets, they were left much, with much less power than they had been before, and that led to them seeking protection from Western Europe, and it happened exactly on August 11, 1840. And when that happened the Millerites were electrified by that because they saw that what William Miller was preaching actually was true, that the year-day principle actually was correct, that if you use the principle of the year-day, it, it actually will take you to an exact day um, if the prophecy does that. And this one was so precise, 391 years and 15 days, and it was right on... The mark. Yeah, I see your hand back there. Well, the Ottoman Empire was essentially a much larger version of Turkey as we know it today. It was very extensive. They were known as the Ottoman Turks. So it was basically Turks that, and they were Islamic, and it it was very extensive throughout Eastern Europe, and they were the leading world power during that time. And when I was a, a little, I was about 15 or younger. Um, I went to an exhibition in Memphis 
that had all of their uh, all of the display of the Ottomans and they they were very um, sophisticated for the time that they lived in so anyway so they 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 dominated the earth between 1449 and 1840 but the reason why this is significant is because the Millerites as they were studying these trumpets realized that the sixth trumpet reached its fulfillment on August 11, 1840, and there's only one more trumpet after that. And then they, with the 2300-day prophecy, at that time they believed it ended in 1843. And so when this prophecy was fulfilled, this really electrified the movement. And between 1840 to 1844 is when, there, that, that was the period of time when the first angel's message was preached with the most power. So the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet of Revelation chapter 9 was really the, um, it really initiated and helped the movement to take off with greater power than it had to at that point. Because basically up until then, William Miller was, was known, but not that many people had heard him. But then when this prophecy was fulfilled, then he started preaching in the big cities. Joshua Himes helped him with that. Newspapers started... Um, publishing the Millerite teachings, the movement really grew in the conservative estimates, 50,000, and it could have been much larger than that. So from August 1840 on, there was a lot of power behind the preaching of the first angel's message, which the Millerites were preaching, 1843, Jesus is coming. That's the hour of his judgment, which we know to be, the hour of his judgment is different than what they were preaching. But God allowed that to happen for a reason. Now, what happened historically, we know that 1843 came and went, but the Millerites believed that, according to the Jewish year, the year 1843 would, went, would end in the springtime. But by the time the spring came and went, they were pretty disappointed. That was the early disappointment. And um, this was spring of 1844. And there was a verse in Scripture that they came to that encourage them. This, this is found in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And Ellen White talks about this verse in Great Controversy, and she corroborates the interpretation that the the Millerites gave to it during this time period. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, there's a couple of interesting points. The, the pioneers already knew about this verse. And it talks about here, it says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. Right here in this book, and you can't see it real well, but there's an 1843 chart and an 1850 chart. And the, the Millerites actually, well, this is a Millerite chart. This is an Adventist chart. The, they made these charts based upon this passage of Scripture. Um, and actually, Charles Fitch, was one who made this first chart, and he died a week before October 22, 1844. 
and his family believed that he would be resurrected a week later. So the di October 22 was an even more bitter disappointment for them, or a greater disappointment. But these are, the, these are the charts that the early Adventists made based on this passage of Scripture. But then when they came to the time of disappointment, they looked at it again and they saw that it said, the vision will tarry, but wait for it. And that gave them courage that they had perhaps misinterpreted the time and that it was still going to be fulfilled at the appointed time. And then this is, of course, the great passage of Scripture where, where Paul says, the just shall live by faith. And this has a direct implication to the third angel's message where it says the just shall live by his faith. This is talking about the faith of Jesus, and that's in Revelation 14.12. That's the third angel's message. So Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 4, is a significant verse in the development of the Advent movement. But I want to go back to Revelation. And in Revelation 10, we've come through the first six trumpets. Revelation 10... Oh, sure. Uh-huh. 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 Mm. Uh, that's a very interesting point. So, Great. Well, if, for those of you who couldn't hear him, what he said is that Constantinople um, fell to the Ottomans in 1453, and after that the Renaissance really opened up, which laid the foundation for the Reformation, the Reformers, Martin Luther, and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff in history that we could talk about that ties into these prophecies. Now what happens here, Revelation chapter 9 sets the stage for Revelation chapter 10. And Revelation chapter 9 ends in, with the sixth trumpet, August 11, 1840. And then Revelation chapter 10, we're not going to break down Revelation chapter 10. That would be a great Bible study all on its own. And Peter Gregory did three sermons on that at Southwest Youth Conference last year. So you could go back and listen to that. But Revelation chapter 10 is the rise of the Second Advent Movement. And it starts with a mighty angel coming down from heaven which, if you study that out, is Jesus. He has a book open in his hand. It's the book of Daniel. And he's opening the book of Daniel, showing that the sealed prophecies of the book of Daniel are now to be understood. And the, the prophecy that was especially sealed and that hadn't been understood was the prophecy of the 2300 days. And so God raised up the Advent movement to understand the 2300-day prophecy. And in verse 7 it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. So now we're getting to the seventh trumpet beginning to sound. And during the, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. And um, how many of you know what the mystery of God is? So the mystery of God, so we'll, we'll, just, we'll just mention this briefly. So, Revelation chapter 10 is the second Advent movement. And it's in the time period of 1840, because Revelation chapter 9 sets the table for that with the, the, the sixth trumpet being fulfilled here on August 11, 1840. 
And it talks about the, the mystery of God being finished. And the mystery of God is in Colossians 1.27. That's one definition. Colossians 1.27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So within the Advent message is a message of Christ our righteousness. And it's not just a message of Christ outside of us. Because this is a big theological debate in the church. Some people say that we're saved only by the righteousness of Christ outside of us. But in Revelation chapter 10, it talks about the mystery of God being finished in the Advent movement. The mystery of God is Christ in you. So that's the message of Christ, our righteousness. Christ not only covering us with His righteousness, but coming into our hearts and finishing His work in our hearts in the Advent movement. And there's a difference between the Second Advent movement and you know, our church that we are part of now. We're not just a church, we're a movement. And there's a difference between us and any other church that's ever existed. The Reformers, Martin Luther, um, John and Charles Wesley who started the Methodist Church, the Calvinists, and all those Reformers, God raised them up during a period of time where essentially He was starting a work of Reformation, but these Reformers were preparing people for death, so they would be ready to meet God when he came the second time. But when God raised up the Advent movement, he had a different purpose. The purpose of the Advent movement wasn't to prepare people for death. It was to prepare people for translation. And that's the purpose of the third angel's message. It's to prepare people to walk into heaven without seeing death. To finish this great controversy here on this earth. And that's that's the difference between the Adventist message and any other message that's ever been. As much as Martin Luther understood, or Calvin, or Wesley, or Wycliffe, or any of the other reformers, they had enough light for their time so that the people who could see their clear teaching of Scripture and accepted Christ, as opposed to the teachings of Catholicism, they would be prepared to be to meet Jesus, but they would have to die first. But when God raised up the Advent movement, it was his purpose for us to be translated. And there's an interesting point that Ellen White makes in early writing. She said that if William Miller had accepted the Sabbath message, which was part of the third angel's message, he would have his health had really broken down after the great disappointment. He was severely disappointed uh, and just physically he had gone through so much. He in, in twelve years he preached uh, 4,000 sermons. So he was preaching like five or six times a week for 12 years straight, which really can wear someone out. And back in that time, and he was living in the colder weather of the Northeast, so, so he didn't have some of the advantages that we have, and he couldn't fly on nice planes. He was going on stagecoach and so forth. He, his health had really broken down. But Ellen White said that if he had accepted the Sabbath message, that his health would have been revived. He would have preached the third angel's message with power and he would have been translated without seeing death. And he, just like Moses, made a mistake just before entering into Canaan. And his mistake was not accepting the Sabbath, and Moses was losing his temper um, and bringing disrepute to God's character um, just before entering into to Canaan. And of course, in Prophets and Kings, or Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says that Moses would have been translated to heaven without seeing death from Canaan after entering um, so those are just some interesting side, side notes. Let's get back to the history. In 1844, 
the summer of 1844, most of the mainstream Christian denominations had had enough of the Millerites. They were sick of the message of the second coming, and they used the verse, and perhaps rightfully so, that no man knows the day or the hour of the Lord's coming. And, and they were right to do that because the, the Millerites came up with a very um, creative interpretation of that verse to, to justify their, um, their position of the year at first and then eventually the exact day. Um, but the truth of the matter was is that the, the Christian churches didn't want to see Jesus come the way it was being described in the Bible. They wanted to see Jesus usher in a temporal millennium that would bring peace and prosperity to this earth, and they would reign with Christ on this earth for a thousand years and enjoy the riches of this earth. And that's what the Christian churches were being taught at that time. And there's some weird teachings being taught now um, that in some ways are similar. But the, the teaching of the Bible is very clear that there will be a literal second coming, that the earth will be destroyed by fire, and that the righteous will, will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and the wicked will be destroyed. And then at the end of the thousand years, there will be a special resurrection of the wicked. So this is what William Miller and the Millerites were teaching, but the, the Christian churches had enough, and they started disfellowshipping the Millerites from their churches. And William Miller and jo Joshua Himes, Josiah Litch, Charles Fitch, you name it, they had been very careful to not call these churches Babylon. They, they were trying to work with these churches as much as they could. Um, Charles Fitch was actually the first one to come out and say that, that the Protestant churches had become part of Babylon. And um, some of you may have been here when Dennis Creevy this year preached a ser sermon by Charles Fitch about sin shall not have dominion over you. If, if you didn't, you can go back and listen to it. But anyway, Charles Fitch had been a Presbyterian member, he was disfellowshipped from his church for preaching victory over sin in the 1840s. And people like him were being disfellowshipped from their churches. And so the Millerites started preaching that the Protestant churches were part of Babylon. And this, so the summer of 1844 is when the second angel's message began to be preached. And there's an interesting point here, Revelation 14, um, verse... Eight. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So the word is fallen, is fallen, is mentioned twice. And Rome, the Catholic Church, had been fallen for many centuries. And the emphasis of the second angel's message in Revelation 14 is that there's two groups that are now fallen. Not just Rome, but apostate Protestantism is now fallen as well. And so, you know, it, it bothers me today when, when I see, you know, growing up in, in the church, I went through our schools all the way up, and there were faithful people all the way through, don't get me wrong, but so many of our young people um, start to think that there's no difference between us and other churches, that we're all the same, we love Jesus, as long as you love God, let's just all get along and, and, and all go to heaven, and that's fine. But the, the thing that the Millerites understood, that the early Adventists understood, was that once the Protestant churches rejected the teaching of the second coming of Christ, they joined Rome, the Roman church, in becoming the fallen churches of Babylon. 
and they continue to teach the false teaching of a false day of worship, and they also teach the immortality of the soul. And those are um, part of the wine of Babylon. So, I'm not... Now, just to clarify, God still has His people in Babylon. That's why the third angel's message says, come out of her, my people. That's where we come in. Those of us who know what we know are to give this message so God's true people and the other churches will come out of the other churches. But there's another point to be made. One of the reasons that it's taken so long for God to use us to call people out of those other churches is that in many respects, we're not ready for God's true people to come into our church. We don't live the message of the third angel. We're still fighting about this and that and fighting to be who's the greatest, just like the disciples. We're more concerned about our um, political strategies within our church than we are about God's strategy. And so God keeps his people in those other churches to protect them from um, some of the, the dangers that can be in our church. Having said that, there are faithful people and faithful churches, and I do believe that we need to be doing the best we can to live this message and to call people out of those other churches. So don't take what I just said and say, oh, let's not do anything, because um, by doing the work of evangelism, when we understand the third angel's message, it will add further revival to our own lives. So that's the history of the first angel's message. It really took off in 1840. The second angel's message started to be given in the, the summer of 1844. And I mentioned this in my sermon a month ago. The midnight cry was given between August 12 through 17 to October 22, 1844. And I, I told this story last time. How many of you heard, heard that in my sermon? Because I don't want to just keep saying the same things over again. Well, there's only a few people, so I'll, I'll just tell it briefly. Um, basically, um, the Millerites were confused as to their understanding of the 2300-day prophecy because they thought that, that Jesus was going to come by the spring of 1844. And that obviously didn't happen. And if you read some of the things that William Miller was saying after that time, he acknowledge he, he had always said if I'm wrong I'll be the first to admit it and so he was admitting he was wrong but yet he was so sure that he was right and he couldn't understand how he was wrong and so it was a mixture of apology and yet defending what he had taught and this was May and June of 1844 and there was a camp meeting in Exeter New Hampshire August 12 through 17 and the Millerites gathered together for a large camp meeting like they had been doing during those years. And towards the beginning of the camp meeting, Joseph Bates was giving a sermon that wasn't really doing much for the audience. And it was basically just talking about the 2300 days and we're going to see Jesus come. But there was no real certainty to it and, and you know, it really wasn't going anywhere. And and a, a gentleman by the name of Samuel Snow arrived during the middle of Joseph Bates' sermon, and he'd been doing some studies. And he wanted to share what he had been studying with his camp meeting. So he came in, and he, his sister was sitting on the front row. He sits down next to his sister and says, I have new light for this camp meeting, and I want to share it. So his sister stands up and tells Joseph Bates to sit down and says, we have someone here with new light. We want to hear him. 
So Joseph Bates gets off the pulpit and Samuel Snow gets up. And this was the point of Samuel Snow's sermon. And the, here, here was his point. When Jesus came to this earth in the spring festivals, Jesus, as the Passover lamb, died on Passover Friday. And it was the actual day of Passover that Jesus died. And so that was evidence of the Messiahship of Christ. When, when the disciples were proving the Messiahship of Christ after he ascended, they were using this as evidence. If you read in the book of Acts and other things. And then Jesus' body was broken and rested as, you know, as unle the broken unleavened bread in the tomb on Sabbath. And then he was resurrected on the, the offering of first fruits. He was the first begotten of the dead. And you can um, see in Hebrews where Jesus is called um, the first begotten son. And in John chapter 3, he was the only begotten son before he died, but he became the first begotten of the dead at his resurrection. And it fit the, the, the antitype of the, the wave sheaf offering of first fruits. And then 50 days later, the early rain was poured out on the very day of Pentecost. So this is what Samuel Snow is explaining to all these Millerites. And then he comes to the 2300-day prophecy, and he says the 2300 days is going to be the fulfillment of the anti-typical day of atonement. And if you follow the Karaite Jew calendar, um, for, for the end of the 2300 days, it takes you to 1844, and the day of atonement in 1844 is October 22. And then he said, just as surely as Jesus came and died on time, the, at the very appointed time, in the midst of the week he was cut off, he was the Passover lamb and so forth, he's going to come right on time on the Day of Atonement out of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And the key point that they were off on was that they believed just like at the end of the Day of Atonement, in the literal sense, the high priest would come out of the most holy place. They believed that the Day of Atonement would just take one day and that Jesus would, would go in and come out on the same day. But they didn't understand that he was going to enter in for the first time. So the argument was right that October 22 was the fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy. And Ellen White corroborates that. But this was before Ellen White was a prophet that they came to this conclusion. And this became known as the midnight cry. Because after Samuel Snow made this presentation, it was so compelling and electrifying that he had to do the presentation again the next morning so that it be, so they could just make sure that everything he said made sense. He repeated the, the, his presentation the next day. And the, arg or the words on everyone's list when they left that camp meeting was, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And the whole Northeast, the whole Millerite movement was electrified. And they truly believed that in about two months, Jesus was coming. And, and, you know, I wonder what it would be like for us today if we knew that Jesus was coming in two months. I mean, they had seen the 391-year, 15-day prophecy fulfilled. They had seen how the Holy Spirit was guiding their movement. They, they knew they were a fulfillment of Bible prophecy because nothing like them had happened since the time of the Reformers. And, you know, Ellen White goes as far as to say, and I don't have the quote with me, it's in the great controversy that she says, since the time of the, the apostles, there's been no movement has been more free of imperfection than was that of the, of the 1844 movement. 
and the the Holy Spirit was really behind what happened. And so every time I read that story, it just really gets me excited about um, what God's purpose is for us as a church. Of course, we know that the the great day of disappointment came on October 22, 1844. But that was the day that Jesus moved into the most holy place. And in the most holy place, this is where we have the Ark of the Covenant, which has the Ten Commandments. And it was God's purpose, if you read the writings of Ellen White, it was God's purpose to to bring His true believers to the time of the disappointment and for them to stay together and then to, to, to have a more complete understanding of God's law. Because as Jesus went into the most holy place, by faith they were to enter in with him. And there they would learn about the law of God more fully, the seventh-day Sabbath. And some of them did, but only a few. The faithful who, by faith, followed Jesus from the holy place to the most holy place, went from 50,000 to 50. And that's the start of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We started with 50 people in 1844, the morning after. That's where we started. We almost, I mean, we don't have quite 50 people here today, but think about it. From a group of roughly this size, the Seventh-day Adventist Church started. Now, it had its power from the, the great Advent movement that led all the way to 1844. And those 50 people, they didn't give up their faith. They knew God had led them to that point. And they weren't about to give it up. Many others couldn't reconcile the prophecies and so forth. One of the the first person, of course, who understood what happened was Hiram Edson. And this was the interesting point about Hiram Edson who was given the, we don't know if it was a vision or just his mind was enlightened to know what Jesus was doing. It's not real clear. But Hiram Edson and his friends were in a barn praying that the Holy Spirit would give them an understanding as to what really happened. And they kept praying until they felt the peace of God in their midst. And so I don't know how long they prayed, but they didn't pray a five-minute prayer and just leave and say, well, I hope God answers our prayer. They kept praying until they knew that the Holy Spirit had heard their prayer. And it was after Hiram Edson left that barn that he realized that it was Jesus entering into the most holy place the first time. So that's some history, some prophecy and some history that adds some color to the, the period of time known as the, the Great Second Advent Awakening between 1832 and 1844. And that takes us from 1844 till now. Here we are in 2006, still waiting for Jesus to come. And we're living in the time of the third angel's message. And the third angel's message is to call people out of Babylon. And it talks about the mark of the beast. And it talks about, in Revelation 14, 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So you have a commandment-keeping, obedient group who live or keep the faith of Jesus. Now, some of you have probably heard this before, but you know, it's, it's completely different to say I have faith in Jesus and to say that I have the faith of Jesus. If I have faith in Jesus, that means I could say, well, I believe that Jesus died for me. 
But as James says, the, dev the devils believe and, and tremble. So that doesn't really... I mean, it's good to have faith in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But it's entirely different to have the faith of Jesus. That's saying that we have the same faith that he had. And our purpose today as a, as a group, as a church, as a movement, isn't just to keep the status quo and to keep seeing our, our grandparents and parents go to the grave. I've already buried my father. And that wasn't God's will, you know? Uh, my dad came into the Adventist church when he was in his 30s or late 20s through the, the ministry of a, of a godly Seventh-day Adventist physician. And he believed that Jesus would come in his lifetime. And yet, just like the children of Israel of old, we're taking detours through the wilderness. We, we like our lifestyle here on this earth. And instead of hastening the second coming, instead of giving the third angel's message and living it, uh, we're 162 years after 1844, and the Lord wanted to come shortly after 1844. He didn't want to wait till 2006. And so the purpose of the third angel's message is not to preach a message just to show that we have the truth and no one else does. Because if we know what the truth is and we know that we're right, but we don't really allow that truth to change our lives, and we can preach as many evangelistic series and revival meetings as we want, and it will be like the offerings of the Jews of old. Um, they, they felt that their forms and ceremonies were what gave them value in the sight of God. But what God really wants to see among us is not just the people who know the truth. And, and many winds of doctrine are blowing, so we need to know what we believe. We need to know our theology. We need to know what righteousness by faith really is. But we also need to have a true heart change and to, to let God live in us every day. And when God has a group of people who have the patience of the saints, they keep the commandments of God, they have the faith of Jesus, then he will have a group that's prepared for translation. And that's what the Advent movement was brought on this earth. That's its purpose, that's its reason for existence. When Jesus entered into the most holy place, he planned on staying for a short time because now he had everything in place to finish his work a complete understanding of truth and a group of people who would be willing to take that message to the world. So in Revelation 10, we'll close with this. The Advent movement went through the, the bitter disappointment. It's talked about here in Revelation chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. It says, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So that's the great disappointment. In verse 11 it says, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so that's our commission today, to prophesy again before before the world, to give the third angel's message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, to give the message of the Sabbath, 
to help people understand what Jesus is doing for us now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, to understand that he, as our high priest, can help us with every temptation, that he can give us victory over every sin in our life, that he can help us to be like Jesus, to have the character that's described as 144,000. They are standing on the sea of glass that they're without fault before the throne of God and in their mouth was found no guile. And that's just how Jesus is described in 1 Peter chapter 2. So that's our commission. I know that the last few things that I've shared is fairly familiar, but it never hurts to be reminded of, of what our purpose is. And I hope that as you look back at Revelation chapter 8 and 9, and you see some of the detail of the, these kings in the first four trumpets that attack the Western Roman Empire, and you see the specific prophecies that were fulfilled to the very day, that, that God, God isn't playing around in his word. There's, there were specific fulfillments, and there's enough evidence and information to show us that the Advent movement was brought on to the world scene in the time period of 1844 for a special reason. And there's just enough evidence for us there. And then to look at the history of the Millerite movement, to know that we surely are a movement raised up by God to finish his work and to prepare people to see Jesus come soon. So, um, any poor... Hang on. Go ahead. Okay. It's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Okay, yeah, we'll read verse 19. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we do have a more sure word of prophecy that this movement is based on. That's Joanna. What, what did he step him through? I, I was just curious. I mean, what did God step... Whoa, this is loud. What did God step his disciples through to make turn them from quarreling mm -hmm. to together? Okay. I mean, is he going to step us through? Was it crises? Was it, I mean, there was crises in there, but what caused them to actually come together? Yeah, that's a good question. We know that 40 days after the resurrection, Christ was with them. Um, not necessarily every day, but for periods of time during the 40 days. And he instructed them what to do. He told them to go to Jerusalem and to, to pray together. And, and this is an interesting point. Between the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost was 10 days. Because Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection, the offering of first fruits. And Jesus ascended 40 days after. So the, the disciples went back to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room for 10 days. And what did they do during those 10 days? They spent that time confessing their faults to each other, making wrongs right, heartfelt. It wasn't just a facade where they were trying to save face so that people would think that they were good enough to be part of the team type of thing. There was true, genuine, heartfelt confession and repentance. And 
by the time the day of Pentecost came, the Bible says they were of one accord. And that's when the Holy Spirit could be poured out. And so we're waiting for the latter rain to be poured out so we can give a loud cry again. One thing I mentioned in my sermon last time was that Ellen White says the midnight cry and the, the parable of the bridegroom has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled to the very letter. So we saw it fulfilled in the Millerite movement. We'll see it fulfilled again in Revelation 18 when the whole earth is lightened with the glory of God. And that's when the latter rain is poured out. So we're waiting for the time when God's people will stop bickering about all this foolishness and who's the greatest and I'm in charge and you're not and, you know, how come people didn't go through me to get this done, that sort of thing, and actually have the spirit and mind of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit will be able to be poured out in laddering proportions. So, thank you. You know, that's um, really wasn't part of our study today, but I, I haven't put the time into setting some of the details of, of that recently, so I'll have to go back and look at that. If I don't have a good answer, I don't know if someone else does. But, anyway. but essentially, um, the, the historical side of the six seals was that in the first part you have pagan realm persecuting the Christians and then it turns to papal realm persecuting God's true people. So that's that's the essence of the still. Any anything else or what we can close up here. It's getting late. Why don't we have a word of prayer to close our study? Thank you very much. You've been a attentive audience and I hope that it's been of some value for you. So let's um, close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the Advent movement for the more sure word of prophecy that you've given to us, the light that shines in a dark place during the darkest part of Earth's history. We thank you for the transforming aspect of prophecy, that we see that your hand has guided to the very detail the rise of the Advent movement. And in Revelation 10, we see that Jesus himself was the mighty angel who came down to start this movement. The Lord, we're thankful to be part of this movement. I pray that each one of us here would realize the significance of it and that we would be faithful to the third angel's message, that we would surrender our lives, that we would have the mind of Christ, that Christ truly would be in us, the hope of glory, and that the old man of self would die and that the love of Jesus would shine forth from our hearts. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us, and I pray that we would go forth from here more committed to serve you each and every day. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.